Uh, We're tracking along in the parables, and I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. I think this may be one of my favorite uh, chapters of parables. Um, You know, this morning in the sermon, I mentioned that Sermon on the Mount, I think of it as Jesus' first sermon. And I don't know that that's the first time he ever spoke like that. But the way Matthew sets it up, Matthew's, Matthew's gospel is centered around five extended teachings of Jesus. That, uh, you know, if you've got a red-letter Bible, you'll notice that there are large sections where it's all red text. Matthew wants you to see those uh, and hear those, those long, extended teachings of Jesus. This is one of those. And this is the one that's centered around parables. And uh, it, it not only contains parables... And, um, and an encouragement for uh, those who would be scribes in the kingdom of God to use parables. But it starts out also with an explanation of parables. And um, so this, is a, this, this really is a parable about parables. All right, so we're going to read the first uh, 23 verses here. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake, and such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it, and while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred sixty or thirty times what was sown whoever has ears let them hear the disciples came to him and asked why do you speak to the people in parables he replied because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you but not to them Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. Now this is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So we have here a parable about the kingdom and about the message of the kingdom. A question from the disciples about Jesus' chosen method of teaching. And then an explanation of the parable. And this is, this is, a, this is a, good, um, a good text to look at. Um, it's familiar to us. We, we, we know about this one. We often know the uh, expected lesson. There's four kinds of soils and only one of them is right, so you'd better be the good soil. Soil, I've noticed, doesn't really have much of a choice in what kind of soil it is. Have you ever noticed that? It, um, and besides, when that bird's out there snatching that seed away, what are you going to do? Shoot the bird? I mean, you know, it, uh, and if you're the soil, what, what good are you going to do? Soil's just soil. Seems like the emphasis is on the seed and how it's received. Now, of course, one of the questions that comes up here is when the disciples say, why are you teaching in parables? One of the things that the text never gives us is tone. Okay, And I wonder if they're really coming to Jesus. And we like to give the, the disciples the, the benefit of the doubt. And if we're, you know, if we're really elevating them and making them all look good, then it's a rather reflective moment. And they come to him like genuine scholars saying, why then, Jesus, do you speak in parables? They just really want to know. Or maybe the tone is, is confusion. Why are you speaking in parables? You know, what, what, what is this? Or maybe the tone is aggravation. You know, we don't want to think that sometimes, but remember, these disciples are, are human. They're, they're men with feet of clay. And so they might be saying, of all things, why are you keep mentioning things in parables jesus it's as if they're saying why does everything that you say sound like a fortune cookie can't you just tell the people the way it is there's the kingdom you're the messiah let's get with it folks that's what their hope was at times they were waiting for the the champion messiah who would restore israel gonna bring it back to its glory and if jesus would just tell them i'm the messiah let's just Let's go take over the Romans. Come on, God's with me. But they didn't understand what the kingdom really was about. And that would have taken a lot of people in the wrong direction. But still, it's a good question. Why speak in parables? Well, the background of, um, of Jesus' answer is Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. He says that in 14. And if you want to take a look at that, that's Isaiah chapter 6. And this is Isaiah's commission. And one of the things that's interesting about Isaiah is, you know, Isaiah, uh, oh, we love Isaiah. And uh, you've got some 60-something plus chapters of Isaiah prophecies uh, representing God's history over hundreds of years because Isaiah prophesies about uh, the kingdom of Israel in the north and what happens in the 8th century B.C. and then he prophesies about the, uh, um, 
the exile to Babylon and then the restoration after that. Oh, it's, this is far-ranging stuff. Yeah, Isaiah is popular. And a lot of the Christian thinking, you know, you, you think about how many chapters and how many verses in Isaiah have something to do with understanding who Christ is. Isaiah 53 certainly comes to mind. Um, and then there's so many others. Uh, Revelation is just infused with Isaiah language. But here's the thing about Isaiah in his own time. Isaiah is like one of those uh, great geniuses that in his own time was not respected and underappreciated. That's Isaiah. To his own people, in his own day and age, Isaiah was sort of a failure. Or they viewed him as a failure. Uh, Case in point. Uh, Oh, and by the way, here's another one. Isaiah 7. Boy, we're going to be thinking a lot about that. The prophecy of the virgin who's with child. Okay, Isaiah's task is to, his first task, his, his calling, his commission, is to go to the king of Israel, who's uh, Ahaz, uh, the king of Judah, rather, and to go to Ahaz and, um, and, and to tell him, listen, don't worry about your enemies. I know you're planning on making an alliance with foreign powers because you're worried, because you're nervous, because you're fearful. Don't worry about it. The people that you're worried about are going to come to ruin. But the way it goes down is Isaiah goes to him and he says, Listen, the Lord has told you, king, you ask for it and it's yours. What kind of sign do you want? And that's where we get this sign. Um, look, take a look, for example, at... Um, uh, seven, chapter 7, verse 10 of Isaiah. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Now, typically, God does not look favorably on people who ask for signs. His word ought to be enough. But this is one of those rare moments where God is saying, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. This is important. This is important enough. I'll give you a sign. Whatever the sign is, just listen to my word about what's going to happen. But Ahaz comes back and says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Which is a bit pompous. Because the reason he can say that is because in his own mind, he's got it all figured out. I don't really need your help. Thanks, God. But we got this. So Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He'll be eating curds and honey when, uh, when he knows enough to reject the right or reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings that you dread will be laid to waste. Let me update that in a little modern vernacular without all this curds and, and honey talk. He's saying, and this is for his time. Later on, this will be applied to Mary and to, to Jesus. But in this time and place, Isaiah's direct meaning is that young woman who's a member of your household, a virgin, she's going to have a kid. And this is not a miraculous birth. This is just he's saying, you know, she's your wife, she's your girl, she's, she's going to have a baby. Ahaz. 
before the kid is out of diapers, the two countries that you're worried about are going to be laid to waste. In other words, it won't be very long. You've got nothing to fear. And you start marking the days on the calendar as soon as that child is born. And before he's, you know, weaned from a bottle, you you can use whatever it means, as long as the kid's a little baby, you know, he's eating baby food, curds and honey. That, that those, uh, those two nations that you're worried about are going to be gone. Now, that's the Lord's assurance to Ahaz because he doesn't want Ahaz to get wrapped up in the foreign alliances which are going to cause all sorts of problems. In other words, Ahaz's um, friend is worse than his enemy. Um, but they don't listen. So look at chapter 8. The Lord said to me, this is Isaiah talking, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And so I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. And then I, I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him that name, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Uh, if you um, skip on down to verse 18, Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, go back up to verse 16. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Since the king has rejected Isaiah's message, Isaiah and his family, and now this son who's got this symbolic name, which represents that short time frame. And right there in front of witnesses, he's saying, look, We're going to write this down. You're going to remember this date. We're going to put our trust in God. My disciples are going to follow it. We're going to bind up this scroll. We're going to, you know, it's a teaching. It's a book. We're writing it right now, a book about what's going to happen. We're going to put our trust in the Lord. The rest of them have chosen their own lot. They are the good soil that receives the message And it means that they live a very different way. And they are so radically committed to trusting in the Lord, they look like aliens in their own land. He's even naming his kid, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. You You can't even yell at him correctly when he's in trouble. Hey, quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, get in this house. But that name has meaning. Um... They look different. They're going to act different. Why? Because they've received the Lord's message about trust. But it's not a message that the people of his own day and age, even the powers that be, the king didn't receive it. As he said in chapter 6, when God called Isaiah, he said, I'm going to send you out and you're going to preach my word to these people. You know, we always remember Isaiah and he's in the temple and here comes the angel with the burning hot coal to cleanse his, his, his lips and to give him the, the, you know, the, the task of preaching. Oh, how great that sounds. Except, what do you do when you're preaching and everybody doesn't listen? 
That's frustration. Um, and God warns him at the start. He says um, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 9, Go and tell this people, Be ever seen, hearing but never understanding. Be ever seen but never perceiving. Those who are going to get the message of the kingdom are going to get it. This is the story. This is the background and the history that Jesus is calling upon as he's telling his disciples, and by extension us, why parables matter. The reason why Jesus doesn't come right out and say, okay, look, here it is, is because the kingdom of God and the message of the kingdom of God cannot be reduced down to a slogan or a procedure. It it can't be contained in such a thing. I mean, think about it. If... um, you know, God is not a genie who gives us three wishes. And once the three wishes are up, that's it. There are some religions, that I remember studying about these in college, and there's one where all you have to do is uh, uh, chant the name of the God three times, and then you get salvation. And of course, right there in class, we all did that just to cover all the bases, you know. Oh, we better do that, you know. I mean, if it's that easy, you know, but here's the thing. It didn't change our lives. It didn't do anything. But, you know, we, we checked off the list. And that's the problem with religions that you can reduce down to a slogan. They don't create any change. There's no crop. There's no benefit. You haven't been given the seed of the kingdom. Somebody's just thrown you a tomato. There you go. That came from somebody else's garden. That'll last you for a little while, but it won't last you forever. Now, it sounds cruel that Jesus is preaching these parables, and it sounds like God's being the trickster and tricking, you know, tripping people up. Well, I tell them, you, know, you could interpret this as Jesus saying, you would be wrong, but you could interpret this, and many people have, as Jesus saying, well, I preach in parables so that people won't understand. He's saying, I preach in parables because people don't understand. In fact, this statement, we use a statement like this, and we have for a long time, and and, and we don't realize it. But this statement that's so harsh, and again, depending on which English translation you've got, uh, he'll say, this is why I speak to them in parables, verse 13. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Uh, And it sounds like... um, the task of the prophet or the parable speaker is to confuse people. No. You know the old saying, there are none so blind as them who would not see or will not see. It means that blindness is more than just the ability to perceive light. That there is a blindness that's even worse than not having your vision. It's a blindness of the heart. And that's the meaning here. That the people who are being spoken to in parables, that all of the people who hear, us, you and I, we may have all of our auditory capability. We may be able to hear sound, but we don't get it. We may be able to see all the beauty around us and everything around us, but we don't get it. There's a difference between the ability to see and perception and the ability to hear and understanding. What the parable does is the parable invites you into a reality. Like soil, you get impacted by seed. Soil 
is just soil. But once that living seed goes into the soil, something miraculous happens. Oh, I know you can explain it scientifically. But even at some level, even if you, you know, at a scientific level, you have to appreciate the fact that that little grain becomes something good to eat. How fascinating is that? Um, and, and so that soil, which is just there, becomes the place where this amazing growth happens. Now, there are things that can cause that growth to, um, to slow down or to not even happen. And Jesus mentions those in the parable. But once the story has been implanted in your understanding, you're going to dwell on it. You're going to think about it. You're going to have to live with it. And what follows after this are a series of parables, a set of parables that just keep coming at us like more and more seed. It's like, well, what about this and what about this? And before you know it, we've entered into the reality of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven cannot be reduced down to a set of rules, a slogan, or a set of responsibilities. If all you have to do is attend three services a week, get baptized, and take communion as often as you can, and you haven't really experienced the kingdom. The kingdom's much more than that. And we're being called into it. And, and not just to make it out of this life alive, but to truly live, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Hmm. So... Um, I was, uh, here's how stories work. Um, We've got a mission statement, making disciples for Jesus who are eager to serve others. I like it. It was here before I got here. But I like it. It tells you something. We want to make disciples for Jesus. We want to be disciples of Jesus. We want those people to be eager to serve others. We know it. We speak it. But if I was to ask you, yeah, but what's that mean? What does that really mean? Now, you could parse every word. You, you could describe what disciple means to me. You could go back into the Greek and the ancient languages and tell me, well, this comes from that verse and this comes from that verse. And you know what? I'll have a little bit of knowledge up here. But when you tell me a story about someone who didn't know Jesus, And now they do. I get interested. When you tell me about someone who lived one way and now lives another way, I get interested. When you tell me stories of people serving and the people who are served and how God is working in all of it. You know, think about all the exciting stories that we share all the time. Not just about our service and what we do to make ourselves great, but sometimes we tell stories about those who are doing service and we're like, we don't know how this happened, but we got caught up in something bigger than ourselves and it was exciting because we saw God at work. And in fact, the people that we were serving were the ones who showed us the gospel. Hey, now that gets interesting. So we had to have a uh, mission statement at the, at the last congregation I was at. And I tell you, it eluded us. It was hard to find a mission statement, something, some slogan that was simple. Because, you know, every time you try to reduce it down, it, 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 it's, it's sort of, it, it, 
you know, it, it, it's sort of like uh, trying to, uh, uh, you know, squeeze all your clothes into a suitcase, you know, and just when you get one side, boom, something pops out. You know, you, you keep trying to get it all in there, and, you know, it's like we gave one statement that'll explain it all, and it resisted it. And finally, we landed on a, we, 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 we said, no mission statement, we've got a mission story. And the story goes like this. And at least it was my version of explaining uh, who we were to other people. Um, if you've ever been over to Tahlequah, you, you may notice that somewhere on those mountains, there's a, there's a huge cross. And when we would go on retreats with the Razorbacks for Christ, for year after year, all of us college students, we would go to the retreat site, and we'd look across the way, and there was this cross. And we kept looking at that cross. We kept seeing that cross. Finally, our last year, we knew we weren't coming back. We were all graduating. Those of us, a group of us who were seniors said, you know what? We're going to find that cross. We've done the hiking. We've done the canoeing. We've done all the fun stuff here at the camp year after year. We're going to find that cross. So we set out to find it. We tried to find the road that gets up to it. We tried to get as close as we could at one person driving, one person always keeping one eye on the cross and saying, okay, I think we're closer. I think we're closer. I think we're closer. Finally, we found this little trail. And we parked the car, and we got on the trail, and we hiked up the hill. And as we come up, we start to see the cross, and there it is, and it's getting bigger and bigger. And when we get to the cross, we look, and there's a whole little community. It's like a little village. There's a couple of houses. There's a retreat center. We had no idea all this was there. They even had like a little volunteer fire department. And a little, we didn't know what was going on. It was like, wow, there's a whole group of people living beneath this cross up here and remembering that story i thought isn't that what we want to be the people who live beneath the cross and when people come to jesus they find out that there's a group of people who live underneath the shadow of that cross see that was our parable and i think that can be our parable for the church but this is what parables do they draw you in you think you're going to just find the answer. And guess what? You find out there's much more than what you thought was there. So as we go looking ahead in the next few weeks at these other parables, get ready to be drawn into the kingdom. Let the seed do its work. And it will produce a crop. Uh, we're gonna, Ron's going to lead us in this song. If you need to partake of communion, that's in room 100. And then after this, Fred Jackson will dismiss us in prayer. Let's stand and sing.